ribs at your summer block party, make sure you invite me. My name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors on the team. You might want to grab your notes out of your handout. And uh, I do want to say just one more time, welcome to Overlake if this is your first time. We have air conditioning. And uh, so on a weekend like this, it's wonderful to come in and, uh, you know, shelter yourself from the, uh, the sun. You, many, many of you needed a, a definition. That is the sunshine, actually, that uh, we've been enjoying and uh, some of us burning very much. So I am excited about what God's doing at Overlake as we jump into this 10 weeks at 10. We are going through a series called Like a King, and we're going to be talking about King David primarily. We're actually jumping into the ancient kingdom of Israel. Some of you already know this, but there's this sort of a a, a beautiful stretch where uh, Saul was the king for roughly 40 years, and then David uh, became the king. He was the king of Israel for roughly 40 years, and then his son Solomon became king, again, king for roughly 40 years. So that 120-year stretch in the ancient kingdom of Israel, it, it was the, the golden era of Israel. Those were the glory days, like King Arthur and his mystical court, or like uh, reruns of the Wonder Years. Um, it, it's every time you think of ancient Israel, uh, as we're going through this, think of it in sepia tones. It, it just was beautiful and wonderful, all kinds of great, great stuff happening. And the reason why we're, we're focusing on the person of David and the reason why he is getting sort of the, the uh, spotlight, if you will, for the course of this summer is because he is in so many ways the, the, the epic epicenter of what this relationship is between God and Israel. And so you'll notice that he's the warrior, he's the poet, he's a prophet, he's a sinner, he's a saint. Uh, the Bible describes him as a man after God's own heart. And David is a type. He's an archetype. Um, You know the name David means beloved. And so he is the type, the pre-runner of the person of Jesus Christ who is God's beloved son. The Father says, this is my beloved son. And Jesus, of course, is born in the line of David. And Jesus has come near to us to be God's heart tangible for us. He, he's come to reveal God's heart. So not just a man after God's heart, but the revelation of it. Amen. And so what we're going to see as we go through the course of the summer, and it's what I see every time I read through the scripture and, and read about an episode in the life of David, is not only is David this sort of epic kind of a figure in, in the scriptures, but he's also a, a connecting point for how I see God interacts with us. In so many ways, the choices that David makes are are real similar to the choices that we make. In so many ways, the way God has to intersect David's life is the way that God intersects our life today. So you're going to see that as we learn about the life of David, what this looks like to live like a king, we're going to learn a lot about ourselves as well. So we're going to start in 1 Samuel, and if you, uh, if you have your Bibles, bring them, and we'll be in, in Samuel all summer long. You might want to read through 1 and 2 Samuel this summer. If you're looking for a psalm to read this week, read Psalm 89. It, it talks a lot about the special relationship that God has with David. But we're going to start about a thousand years before the nativity of Jesus Christ. Uh, the prophet in the land is named Samuel. 
the king in the land is named Saul. But if you remember anything about the history, uh, Saul got in trouble with God. And God was no longer pleased with Saul's kingship. So God made another plan for a new king to take over. And Samuel was sad about this. There was a heart piece in the prophet Samuel because he was kind of a part of this whole kingship process to begin with. And he had high hopes for Saul. And so there was some grieving going on in Samuel's heart. We pick it up in 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. And this is what happens. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Okay, so let's unpack that for a moment. How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king? You know, what's interesting to note, and you might want to write this down, is that mourning is not wrong. This does not mean that God does not want us to appropriately mourn. And in fact, very, very honestly, Jesus clarifies this when he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So, so this is not some kind of a prohibition against appropriate grief, appropriate mourning. In fact, C.S. Lewis clarifies this concept a little bit. He says, this is what mortals under, misunderstand. We misunderstand this truth. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. That's an amazing truth. And so when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. It, it's an absolute truth that, that we can stand on that bedrock. No, no, the problem that many of us followers of Jesus sometimes have when it comes to mourning is this rough expectation that your mourning needs to be over rather quickly because your mourning makes me a little bit uncomfortable. And it has more to do with my immaturity than it has to do with your heart or God's desire for your life. Does this make sense? And so we got to be really careful that we don't just urge people to move past or get over our mourning. Um, it, it is, though, true that mourning and grief does have a season. And in this context, and specifically in this context with Samuel, God sees that Samuel's season of grieving needs to be done. He sees that, that Samuel's mourning needs to come to a close, and it's time to get moving on to the next thing, to usher in a new day. And so what I want to do is I want to make this personal, like I want to make everything personal when we go through this, this summer, is what would this mean for us as individuals? What might this challenge mean for us? It's not that we never grieve, but it's the challenge to appropriately grieve, to be honest with our hearts, mourning process, and then to ask the Lord, well, what is it that you would have me to go after next? What is it that you are sending me into Next, What is the next assignment you might have for me? And the Apostle Paul really says this well in Philippians 3. He says, no, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, this, this spiritual perfection. But I focus on this one thing, he says, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on. You might want to circle that phrase. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. If you're filling in the blanks, the first one is this, that being chosen requires movement. 
It requires us to press on. It requires us to look forward. And, and so again, making this personal, what might this mean for you in terms of your development? What might this mean for you in terms of your spiritual journey? What, what might this mean in terms of some of us, we still wrestle with a bad decision that we've made. We still wrestle with choices that we've made. And, and so we're kind of locked into cycles of guilt or shame. And, and what might this challenge be to us as we recognize, no, let's, let's mourn it appropriately. But now let's forget what is past and let's press on looking forward to what God has for us. And in the passage of Scripture, what God says to Samuel is, hey, Samuel, it's time to grab life by the horns. Not really. That's a Dodge commercial. Uh, he says, grab your horn and fill it with oil. I've got a king picked out, right? I've got somebody chosen for the kingship. And I want you to know it is God's prerogative to choose, right? It's God's prerogative to choose. I know uh, what was his name? Bobby Brown? Uh, he used to sing a song, My Prerogative. It's not his prerogative. It's God's prerogative. To no? Nobody? 80s? Is it Bobby Brown? It, thank Christina. Bless you. Bless you. All right. Here's what the scripture says in Romans 8, 29. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. When you look at that verse, there's a phrase, and he chose them. Right above the word them, I would love it if you would write the word me. God chose me to become like his son. You see, you are chosen by God. God has picked you to be on his team. Some of you struggle with the issue of significance in your life, and I just want you to hear this clearly, that God has seen you and God loves you. God knows everything about you, and he selects you. He has chosen you. This means you are significant. If you're filling in the blanks, the next one is being chosen communicates significance to us. And I want you to think for a moment, and maybe you have this story in your life, a, a, a time when you were picked. Maybe it was on the playground, and uh, everyone was dividing up for teams, and, and you were in line waiting to be picked for a team. One of the memories that I have is in elementary school, sort of the seasons would go, and there was a long season where basketball was the thing that was played. And I had a problem with basketball. I had a lot of problems with basketball. Uh, I, I, I was short, and, and that really should be present tense. I, I still am. Um, uh, but I was no good as well. So it, it, was, it was, you know, kind of compounded. And, and so I was very often the last kid to be picked for a team. And it wasn't even that I got picked for a team. It was like, all right, I'll take Howerton, you know, come on over here. And, uh, and, and so I had a really poor relationship with basketball due to my worthlessness to it. Now, not all sports did I have a relationship with like basketball. For example, I was the king of kickball, just so you know. I don't want you to feel sorry for me today. Old Leadfoot Howerton, they called me on the playground. But you probably read about that, you know, and the kickball papers. I think I lost my place. Um, 
One summer, my family and I were down in Southern California, and the family had an opportunity to go to Disneyland with the grandparents. And so they were, uh, you know, really enjoying the day, and it was just in that season where my kids were, had just become big enough to ride all the rides. And so it was just really an epic kind of a day in, in their young lives. And at the end of the day, they, they had all gathered together in Main Street, which many of you are familiar with, to watch the fireworks show. And of course, you know, it's just jam-packed at the end of the day, and, and exhaustion has taken over, and it's super crowded. And, and about that time, as they're sitting there waiting for the fireworks show to start, a Disney employee came over and said, excuse me. We were wondering if you would like to be our VIP guest this evening and enjoy the fireworks show in our special uh, area that we have set aside for our guests. And sure, yeah. And so they kind of took him over, and apparently there's this little area right in front of the castle, you know, just near where Walt and Mickey are holding hands, looking into the future. And, and they kind of stretched out in that spot, and they were able to watch this unobstructed fireworks show. And it was just a really, it was a really neat memory. And, and, and that kind of a, a being chosen, right, that, that feels really good to us, doesn't it? And here's the thing, when some of us think about being chosen, when some of us think even about God choosing us, we're quick to discount how important that is, how valuable or significant that is. Because we think to ourselves, ah, it really doesn't matter that much because God loves everybody, right? God's heart is is good for everybody, so it it really doesn't make me special at all. And I sort of get how you can think about that. That way, sometimes I fall into that same kind of a thinking as well. But here's what I I want to suggest to you. The analogy is this. Let's say you are, you want to host a huge party, just this massive banquet, and you want to invite all of your friends. And let's say all of your friends, let's say you have, you know, 5,000 friends on Facebook, say. And you want to invite every one of them to your party. So you send out a blanket message to all 5,000 of your friends, hey, please come to my party. Do you realize that that truly does not feel very special at all, does it? It doesn't feel very chosen. It doesn't, and so I get it. That's how some of us think that God sort of thinks of humanity that way. Oh, just blanket message them. Yeah, come to my party, you know. But now I want you to think about, let's say instead of a blanket email, you personally contact every friend that you have. And you personally tell them why you value their friendship with you. You personally describe why their presence at your banquet would be a beautiful thing and how you really hope that they will be able to make it and come to your party. Do you see how individual, unique, and specific that kind of invitation is? Do you see how valuable that would be to be chosen like that where you know you are honored, you know you are wanted, you know that there is that, that desire to be present with you? That's how God feels about you. See, when we think about being chosen, so often we go to the time or the place where we were not chosen, and here's the reality. God chooses us, lavishing significance, lavishing his love down on us. And the idea that I want you to understand is that Jesus makes us so, he paints the very clearest picture of how valuable we are to God. You know, the question is, what is something worth in this life? 
And the answer is, things are worth whatever someone will pay for it. Right? That's what something is worth, what someone else will pay for it. I read an article this week that there is a car on the market that costs $3 million. Now, why is it worth $3 million? Because some fool will pay $3 million for that vehicle. Now, I read the article. I'm sure it's a wonderful vehicle. I guess it's great. You know, at the end of the day, it will get me from my house to Safeway and back home, Right? And he, he, but, but here's the deal. We know what something is worth based on what someone will pay for it. God says, you are worth so much to me that I will send my son Jesus to the cross so that we can be together forever. If you're filling in the blanks, that's the next fill-in. Being chosen communicates inner value. Inner value. See, God says, you are so valuable to me, you're invaluable. You might wrestle with feelings of worthlessness, but God says you are priceless to me. You have so much value. I choose you, and I want to be with you in this life and in the next one. God has chosen you to be his and to make a difference as a leader in his kingdom. And that's why the apostle Paul says we forget what is behind, and we look forward to what is ahead, and we press on. We go forward in the name of Jesus. Okay, let's get back to the story. So Samuel listens to God. He grabs his oil horn and he heads out to Bethlehem over to Jesse's house. He's looking for a new king. He's got his instructions. And this is what it says, 1 Samuel 16, 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, that's the oldest son of Jesse, and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, amen, for I have rejected him. Now look at this. He says, the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I want us to focus on that last phrase just for a moment, that last sentence, because I want us to, this is, would be a great one for us to memorize. So let's read this last sentence together from 1 Samuel 16, 7. Can we read it together? The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I want to give you a quick memory tool to help you memorize scripture. I've, I've talked to so many people throughout the last, you know, 25 years of ministry that have such a trouble memorizing scripture. So let me give you a tool. And it's this tool. Can, can we get it up on the screen? It's the first letter of every word in the verse that we've just read. Oh, you don't think this works? This is so great. You're making a little flashcard, and you write the verse out on one side, and on the other side, you just write the first letter of every word. So take a look at this, right? The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You're welcome. I know you don't trust me right now. But you should try this. This is a great memory tool. It will help you memorize scripture. Be blessed. Now, 
This, this verse we just read, this verse that you are skeptical, you can memorize. This is such good news. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. There's a few things you have to learn about this. Number one, this is really, really good news for us men who do not look like Brad Pitt and for us women who do. <laughs> you, you, it's great news that the Lord does not look at the outward appearance, right? The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. And then it's, it, the second truth is it, it's beautiful that man, or that God rather, is looking inside of us. He cares about the value of what's inside, right? Not the external, not the surface, but what's really going on here. And so it's a challenge for us to make sure that the things inside are in order, that we're keeping our thought life in order, that we're making sure that our heart is in a good place and that it's in a humble place, at a teachable place, and that we're earnestly trying to walk with the Lord. Does this make sense? Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, Above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. So the condition of our heart matters so greatly to the Lord. And, and so we want to make sure we're taking good care here. And lastly, it's a great reminder for you and for me that we don't fall into the things man looks at. That we don't go after just the cultural value of external appearance and having that be the thing that gets so much you know, acclaim. But rather that we ha start to have the same sort of priority on this issue that God does. Okay. So God tells Samuel, go anoint a new king of Israel. He goes, one of Jesse's sons. He sees the first strapping young son, Eliab. He thinks, oh, this has to be the king. Look, he's, he's tall. He's got broad shoulders. He's, he's hecka handsome. And God says, no, that's not him. And so Samuel says, all right, well, where's the next boy? And so Jesse brings in the second son. And, and Samuel, again, thinks exactly the same thing. This must be the Lord's anointed. But, but God says, no. And so then there's a third son and a fourth son and a fifth son, a sixth son and a seventh son. Jesse was a busy, busy guy. And each time God said, no, this is not the one. <clears throat> Finally, all the sons have been paraded in front of the prophet. And, and Samuel goes, well, you got any more? You know, I, I know I'm supposed to come to your house. Uh, I know I'm in the right house. Jesse of Bethlehem. Yeah. Okay. You know, uh, any more sons to, to show me? And, and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, just the run, you know, J just, the, just the, 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 you know, the guy taking care of the sheep. And the reason why he's taking care of the sheep is because he's the youngest. And that's what we make the youngest do, you know, because nobody wants to take care of the sheep. And Samuel says, get him here. I, I, I want to see him. And so they go and they get David. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and, a ha and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. You might want to underline that last phrase. Amen. Samuel then went to Ramah. So from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. David is now powerful with God's spirit. And this is unique. In the Old Testament paradigm, in the Old Covenant that we have with the Lord, this is a unique relationship. John Wesley says, that is, he was immediately endowed with extraordinary gifts of God's spirit. 
as strength and courage and wisdom and other excellent qualities which fitted him for and put him upon noble attempts. Isn't that beautiful? David is now empowered. He is now equipped to pursue noble attempts for the kingdom of God. And this is true in our lives. You know, as David was anointed with oil, the, the New Testament analogy, that way it's not a perfect analogy, but what's analogous to the anointing in the Old Testament is baptism in the New Testament. Because what's happening in the New Testament is really similar. Do you see, because of the person of Jesus Christ and because of the work that he accomplished on the cross, right, his crucifixion and his resurrection, when he was crucified, do you remember what happened to the curtain in the temple that separated the presence of, the God, of God, the, most, the holy of holies, from, from the common courts, the common people? That curtain was ripped in the temple from top to bottom. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, now when we place our faith in Jesus, when we're baptized into you know, faith in Jesus, our public witness before others, the, the scripture is really clear. We receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord that came upon David powerfully all the days of his life, that also happens in your life and in my life as we place our faith in Jesus and follow after him. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Look what Peter says in Acts chapter 2. Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God. In other words, stop running from God. Stop, stop living your life in a without God kind of a framework and turn to God, begin to live with God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Look at this. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit comes upon us, dwells within us. We are empowered by His Spirit. If you're filling in the blanks, being chosen imparts power. The Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon you and upon me as people of faith following Jesus in power, just like David. Amen. I think one of the things I really would like for you to note is this, that when you read through the life of David and you see how the Spirit of the Lord is powerfully upon his life, understand that in the old covenant paradigm, that was uncommon. It was a special relationship that David had with the Lord. In the new covenant, because of the work of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit in your life, that relationship is common for followers of Jesus. So when we're talking about like a king, you need to know that this is not only for David. This is for you and for me. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. Okay. <clears throat> Let's keep going. 1 Samuel 16, verse 21. David came to Saul. Remember, Saul's the king. And entered his service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. Whenever the Spirit from God came upon Saul, David would take his harp and play. Then relief would come to Saul, he would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. Okay, what I want to pull out of this passage is this, that David, he was anointed by the prophet Samuel, the, the Spirit of God came upon David, and so there was this power. And then notice this, that God brings David now to the king's court, and, and how does Saul respond to him? He loves the guy, right? So Saul immediately, the, the scripture says he liked him very much, 
And then he sent word to David's dad, Jesse, let him stay with me. He said, he pleases me greatly. The word for this, friends, is the word favor. It's the word favor. And it's this idea that under the favor of God that, that David flourishes, that he thrives, that, that uh, his qualities are, that the good qualities that David has are noted and valued and honored. And friends, I want you to understand that this is true for you and it's true for me. Because we are chosen of God, we dwell under the favor of the Lord. If you're filling in the blanks, that's the next one. Being chosen designates favor. It designates this favor from God, this desire that, or this re recognition that you bring him pleasure, that he delights in you. And, and so this idea that now we are free to flourish, we're free to thrive because we live under the favor of the Lord. And if you read more about the context of this, we're not going to go into too much of the detail here, but Saul, he's in a bit of a tormented place. Most scholars believe that he's tormented because he knows that the favor of God has actually left his kingship, that God has repented of making Saul king in the first place. And so there's this recognition that, that he's tormented and, and he, uh, there, there's an evil spirit here who's harassing him, bothering him, provoking him, bullying him, tempting him. And then David, it says, he, he would take his harp and play, and, and as he would sing and play, the evil spirit would flee. And maybe you're here, you're not a church person at all, and you're like, oh, I, I think I know this passage. This is that passage that says, I heard there was a secret chord that David played, and he pleased the Lord. <laughs> but you don't really care for music, do you? It's not the Bible, friends. Leonard Cohen in a song called Hallelujah. By the way, a much stronger song than Bobby Brown's My Prerogative, but I digress. Here's what I want you to see of this picture of David, that David, under the favor of the Lord, is filled with the spirit of the Lord, and as he compassionately cares for this other person, his giftedness drives that evil spirit away. Let me say it even more clearly. Saul was liberated from an evil spirit by the spirit of God dwelling within David. And this is true for you, and it's true for me. It's true for you, and it's true for me, that the spirit of the Most High God dwells within us as followers of Jesus and it's true that every time you show up in a situation to bring care, to bring comfort, to bring clarity, to bring peace, to bring joy, that you have the ability, because of God's spirit dwelling within you, to change the spiritual temperature in the room. And so when you show up and, and there's a friend of yours who's wrestling with illness and you show up with the spirit of God and, and, and you lean in to his care or that, that, that friend's care or that friend's healing, you change the thermometer in the room. When, when you show up just to comfort someone, maybe hold up a friend who's wrestling in despair, you change the thermostat. You, you change the atmosphere spiritually. And friends, it's not you and it's not me, but it's the Spirit of God in you. And it's the Spirit of God in me. And in David, it was the Spirit of the Most High God that would drive the evil away, right? It's, it's this desire that we have to help unburden those 
around us, the, the, the loved ones that we have. We want to, because of God's spirit within us, because of the compassion of God's spirit in us, we want to unburden them of the things that are keeping them heavy laden. I love Galatians 6, 2 and 3. It says this, share each other's burdens and in this way, obey the law of Christ. If you think you are too important to help someone, you're only fooling yourself. You're not that important. I love this verse. This is one of my favorite verses in all scripture. I love that, that uh, the apostle Paul, who's writing this, just calls it out. You're not that important to help someone, right? You're not that important. You think you're too important to help? You're not that important. You think you're too important to serve? You're not that important. You think you're too important to comfort those who are in mourning? You're not that important. I'm not that important. Even the guy anointed to be king of Israel is not that important. You see, we're chosen by God and anointed by God and filled by God's spirit so that we can accomplish exactly this. Filled with power so that we can actually bring comfort, we can bring care, we can bring healing, we can bring hope in situations where those things do not exist. But because of the spirit of God within us, we can bring these. And again, it's not for our glory. I want to be really, really clear. God is the one who gets all of the glory for this. The Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 1, all praise to God. You might want to just circle that. Amen. This is where it all goes. All praise to God, all glory to God, all honor to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. The same comfort God has given us, we can now offer to one another. You know, I think the challenge in all of this is the challenge for us to live as we are. I know that sounds a little simplistic. It's really not. You are chosen by God. And so the challenge is that we would actually live chosen. That you would live the significance that God declares is true of you. That you live the power that God has invested within you. That you would live the value that God says you are worth. That you would, that you would live the kind of comfort and care, the, the, the kind of, of, of transformation in the spiritual atmosphere around you, that you would live with that kind of a knowledge because, friends, you are chosen. You are chosen, and God loves you. And again, I want to be really clear. This is not from, from any sort of inherent, because I'm so wonderful. It's, it's because God says we are wonderful. And God says, I love you. And God invests value in us. And God says, you are priceless to me. And I want you on my team now and forevermore. Hallelujah. And so we're going to keep going after the, the life of David. And we're going to keep looking at the person of David. And we're going to see what it looks like to, to, to experience life like a king. And, and we're going to find that it's actually so relevant to the way in which God wants for you and I to live today. You know, David is a man after God's own heart. And I think it would be appropriate for us to end our time together by going after God's heart together. So would you stand right now? And let's 
praise the Lord together corporately as, as a single church family. And let's do it as men and women who are chosen by God. Mm -hmm.